This is your assignment, one of them, for this class. And that is, actually, it's to be, to be a lifetime habit. But <clears throat> put five people down on a piece of paper, five people that you know that do not know the Lord, that don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. Secondly, they aren't currently going to any church that you know of. <clears throat> now, the only way they can be going to church and be on your list is if you happen to know they're extremely disillusioned and they've told you that and they're searching. Okay? Why do I say this? Because we're trying to deal with the most winnable people first. Alright? Um, and then your assignment is to pray each day, Lord, use me today, give me an opportunity to share my faith. Father, open a door of opportunity in the lives of these five people. And I pray, Lord, that they'd come to know you as their personal Savior. And use me to help lead them to you. I pray, Lord, that I could invite them to church and that, you know, they would come. Or I pray, And then I'm going to give you other things to do as we go through here. Uh, other opportunities that you'll have to get to know them. I may turn winning ways, I don't know. I may do... Winning ways 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 this year. I don't know. Because there's so many things to cover and so many things I think so many individuals need to understand. I was at a seminar this week, Thursday, by a gentleman who um, travels all over and uh, he does research, Christian research. He researches churches. Kind of like George Gallup does, he does for churches and Christians and non-Christians and he gets their thoughts and picks their brain and then he collects the data. And uh, basically, here's the statistics, some of them. Um, <laughs> of the people who say they evangelize, so he calls them the evangelizers, 60% of them do not believe in a personal Holy Spirit. 50% uh, or 60, between 50 and 70, do not believe there is a real devil. Um, about 60% of them believe that God helps them that helps themselves is in the Bible. <laughs> and um, about 40% did not know what the gospel was when they were asked to describe the gospel. They didn't know. So, needless to say, evangelical Christianity is in a very sad state of affairs in the United States. Most Christians have no idea how to articulate their faith. <clears throat> the number one reason that most non-Christians said they were not interested in Christianity was because of someone they knew who said they were a Christian. Has Mark been telling you that? For almost nine years, for those of you that have been here that long. I have been telling you that without any statistics. It's the truth. The second reason that they don't come to Christ is they believe the church is extremely intolerant and judgmental. And we've been saying the same thing for a long time. Jesus left us here to evangelize the world, to win the world to Christ, and we've been, frankly, doing a pathetic, terrible, stinking, miserable job at doing it. So our goal at Evergreen is to change that. Our goal is to at least, as much as it's up to us, to take it seriously, to take Christ's mission seriously, and to do something proactively and positively to impact our world for Jesus Christ and to bring His love and His forgiveness and His message to the world that we live in. The world is very disillusioned. About 25 years ago, uh, you know, people's spiritual interest is about the same today as it was 25 years ago. 
people today say they're very spiritually interested. 72% of all non-church or non-Christian people believe in a all-powerful, all-knowing being who runs the universe. But what's ironic is that 25 years ago, when these people began thinking about spirituality, the first place they would have checked is Christianity. Today, it's the exact opposite. It's the last place. It's the last place they look. Oh yeah, people are very interested in spirituality today. New Age spirituality, Buddhism, Hinduism, Eastern philosophies. Christianity is way down on the bottom of the list. Why? You know why most Christians like to think? is because of the devil. We blame it on Satan. It's his fault. You know, he's turning the masses away from God. Well, there's no question that there's truth in that. There's no question that the devil has a very active role in the world, that he's the prince and the power of the air, and that he's trying to blind the minds of the unbelieving. But, guess who his primary tool has been to do that? The church. The church has had a far more detrimental impact on the concept of Jesus in the world's mind than the media will ever dream of having. Almost 80% of people who come to know Christ come to know Him through a friend, relative, associate, or neighbor. That means you have the opportunity to have tremendous influence on the lives of other people. You know, the statistic that's probably the most bothersome of all is that the lifestyle of Christians in America, people who say they are Christians, there are approximately 85 million individuals in America who say Jesus is their personal Savior and they have invited Him into their life as their Lord and Savior. There are approximately 185 million non-Christians or those who have not yet come to Christ in this country. If, we, if they were to be a country by themselves, they'd be the fifth largest country in the world. And the majority of those are single. The majority of the lost world in America is single. And... <clears throat> You know, one of the things that bothers them the most and that is statistically true when you interview Christians is that their lifestyle is completely non-distinguishable of that of those who say they're non-Christian. Christians in America have a slightly higher divorce rate than non-Christians. The average teenager watches 30 minutes a day of MTV. The average Christian teenager, an hour. I could go on and on and on. We'd all kind of get sick to our stomachs. The point is, is the reason the American church is so lethargic and so anemic is she has forgotten her purpose, her mission, her grand calling from God. God has a purpose for our life. He bought us with His blood. We are not our own. And He has a reason for us to live and to exist and He brings meaning and purpose to every single day of our life. How we do our job, how we interact with people, how we act at the grocery store, how we act at the gas station attendant. We have injustices done to us. I was, the other day I was returning a pair of shoes. I had these shoes about 40 days and 
and the eyelets were tearing through the, you know, these are eyelets. They were tearing through the leather. So I took them back and I tried on all the other shoes because I liked the shoes that they had. And there was flaws in, in all three other brand new pair. Inside of one was ripped. Other two eyelets twisted completely around. Well, anyway, I'm real good at finding those kind of things. wasn't my purpose, but I just wanted to make sure I didn't take home another flawed pair. So I said, well, <clears throat> I'm really sorry. You know, I tried these other two on and they get a problem. The guy says, well, then you can just return them. I said, okay. So I went up to return them. And he goes, oh, well, I can't give you your money back. I just give you a voucher. I said, well, you know, to be honest, I don't want a voucher. You, the, none of the shoes you have here, see, I can use, so I'd like my money. Oh, no, I can't give you the money. I give you the voucher, but it's the same as cash. I said, oh, it's the same as cash. <laughs> I said, now, you're sure it's the same as cash? He said, oh, yeah, same as cash. I said, so do you mean I can buy that $2 bottle for $2 and you'll give me $78 cash and change? Oh, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Oh, then it isn't the same as cash. See, I paid cash for it. You took my $80, but, well, I was getting real hot. <laughs> to say the least, I was getting real hot. I wanted someone's head. I mean, I really did. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. Now you're a Christian. What are you supposed to do? Well, I took a deep breath. I said, okay, well, I'll take the voucher then. And um, thanks. <laughs> and I walked out of the store. <laughs> did I want to do that? No. No, what I wanted to do, to be real honest, was get very angry, demand my rights, and walk him down in front of the store with the protest sign. <laughs> Say, this place is a rip-off! Okay, would I want anybody to the Lord? I go in that place often enough that people remember my face, especially because of my hair. And I can't hide. And they remember, oh yeah, you're that creepo pastor. Some, some real-life Christianity you got! And, and I'm being really honest with you. You know what held me back? What held me back was reminding myself, I'm here for a reason. This person's soul is more important than my $80. I will take this injustice, but I want to make sure I don't damage my testimony for my Savior. Do you follow me? But if I didn't care about that, if I didn't think about that, I simply would have laid into them. I wouldn't have left the store until they gave me my money. I would have made them uncomfortable enough, and I could have done it, with persuasion and verbal abuse that I would have got my money back. But we don't, the Christian world doesn't think, those, they don't think in those terms. We think just like the non-Christian world. You stepped on my rights, get off my toes and get off them now. What did Jesus mean when he said to turn the other cheek? He meant turn the other cheek. He didn't say it wouldn't be painful. He didn't say that it would be easy. He just said to do it. What would happen in the world if we lived our lives in the way the Lord lived His life? If we had the mission the Lord had? I'd like you to turn to John 3.16. Now all of you probably know this verse. This was another very interesting thing. Almost 60% of all the evangelizers that were interviewed could not quote John 3.16. By evangelizers, we mean people who consider themselves out there doing the job of evangelizing 
That's a scary thing, isn't it? That the people who say that they're out representing our faith don't even know John 3.16? Wow, that's a, that's a rough thing. You all know it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. God's main desire is not to condemn the world. God's greatest desire is to win the world to Himself. God's greatest desire is that the world would know that He loves them, that He cares about them, and that He sent His Son to pay the price for their sin. If you go to the last chapter of Mark, Chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And verse 15. This is this simple verse. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. I want to talk to you tonight about our role in the world. And I'm going to develop this further as we go on in the future weeks. God has given us a specific mandate. He's given us a specific mission. He's given us a specific calling. And He's given us the power to fulfill that calling. The Holy Spirit. Now, God's desires have not changed for the world in 2,000 years. God's love is not tarnished towards the world. He loves the world today. When I say the world, I mean mankind. He loves mankind, humankind, as much today as He did 2,000 years ago, as He did 10,000 years ago. He loves mankind. And He cares about every single man, woman, and child. But as, as I was discussing with you last week, according to Romans, there's a big problem and that problem's called sin. And sin makes a separation between us and God. God cannot have anything to do with sin. It's sort of like, picture the Grand Canyon. You have the Grand Canyon. God's on one side, and we're on the other. And there's a great chasm between us. That chasm is sin. Now, there are a lot of different religions in the world. And what they ask you to do is line up on the edge of the Grand Canyon... And they ask you to give your best long jump effort. Now, I don't care if you're Bob Beeman, Mike Powell, or Carl Lewis. I don't care if you can go 30 feet, 40 feet, or man, you can get a big 50 feet. What I'm saying is, God does not care how great your works are. He doesn't care how religious you are. Because no matter who you are, if you line up on that side and you say, Alright God, I'm here to impress you. And you take your steps back and you come flying down that, that, that runway and then you give your best leap. Guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall all the way to the bottom and die. Because there's only one way across the Grand Canyon. There's only one way across the great chasm between us and God. And that is the man Jesus Christ. The God-man. And He laid down His life, and He is the bridge. And unless you come to God through Him, you don't come to God. You are not welcome. You will not be welcomed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Me. That's the law. That's the rule. That's what Jesus died for. Alright? Now, the world, many in the world, 
do not know that message. Many in the world have never heard that message. They need that message. And they need us as Christians to live out that message. To live out the way Jesus lived. To love the way Jesus lived. To show compassion the way Jesus showed compassion. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later. Our attitudes towards lost people. And I'm going to talk to you about right-wing Christian America. And what a pathetic example it has been to the lost world that we live in. And I'm going to bring you an article by Cal Thomas that I received today, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay? But somehow I'm going to get through your brain that we have sent the very wrong message to the very people we're trying to reach. You cannot politicize Jesus. And you cannot transform this country through politics and laws. You cannot eradicate prejudice and hatred and immorality and crime through laws. The only hope for the heart of mankind is to be regenerated, renewed through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through conversion, through coming to Jesus Christ and being born again. That's the only hope. Now the problem is, is that we have a giant PR problem. Let's just talk business for just a moment, okay? We have a huge PR problem. If the church were a business, we're going broke. You're the stockholders. I brought you together. We're the only people who can turn this company around. We're going broke. Unless we do something immediately to turn the tide of public opinion towards us, then public opinion towards our product, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to go right down the toilet with it. And the reason why is because of people who have actually misrepresented our views, who have impressed on the lost world that we are all bigots, that we hate, that we are anti-everything. Two things that non-Christians, two most common things that they said when asked, what's a Christian? A person who goes to a lot of meetings and a person who's against a whole lot of things. Boy, that's what I want to be known for. Not. That's a monster problem. In business terms, that's a monstrous problem. And we must turn it around one life at a time. One job at a time. Each one of you are a representative. I want you to go to John 17 for just a moment. And I want you to look at a very profound statement there <coughs> that Jesus makes. Actually... For those of you who grew up being taught the Lord's Prayer, you were probably taught the wrong prayer. The Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is not the Lord's Prayer. Technically, it's the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, John 17. This is the longest and the most thoroughly recorded prayer of the Lord in John chapter 17. Verse 1, After Jesus said this, He looked towards heaven and prayed. And this is what he was on his mind. All right? Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, when you know God, that's automatic eternal life. When you know Christ, that's automatically eternal life. And that's, that's the message, that we need to come to know him. Now, we go to verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I have in my, uh, in my notebook. I'm going to go get it, okay? Just stay real calm. I want to read this to you. 
Okay, I have this book that I carry around. And I write these things in it that the Lord impresses on my heart. And I want to read you one here. Some of you may have heard this before. Some of you may not. That's fine. This is called The Sending. That's what I call it. This is based on John 17, 18. Jesus did not come into the world to make a life for himself. But he came into the world to make a life for others. Eternal life, to be specific. Jesus sends us into the world not to make a life for ourselves, but to make a life for others. Jesus did Die, excuse me, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He expects us to die for the salvation of the world. That is, that we would give our lives to propagate His message and His love to the world. Death, 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 that others might live. He has given us the sending. you understand what I'm saying? The fact of the matter is that most Christians live their lives for one purpose alone, to make a life for them and theirs. And if I can be quite frank, it's outright rebellion to what God has commanded us to do. Now, I want you to make sure you have this all in perspective. There's nothing wrong with having a home, nothing wrong with living in a house, nothing wrong with having a roof over your head, nothing wrong with having food in your refrigerator, nothing wrong with having a car in your garage. The question you must ask yourself, as you look at your life, as you look at your passions, as you look at your thoughts, as you look at that which consumes you, Is it your focus on the mission and these things are just the necessary things you need to fulfill that mission or are they the whole reason that you live and exist? And in America, materialism is the primary reason the church lives and exists. Money, they want their comfort. But that's not what Jesus came for. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air has nests, but I don't have a place to lay my head. What was he saying? That it's sinful to have a place to lay your head? No. That that's not what I'm about. I'm not about that. I'm focused. I'm on a mission. I know why I'm here. And I take it very seriously. I want to somehow impregnate your minds with the fact, brother and sister, that this is not a game. This is not a joke. Uh, for you singles, I'm going to be getting into this a little bit in... Uh, My next thing on dating and marriage and all that kind of stuff, because, you know, basically, it's really easy to figure out who you're going to marry. All right? All you do is decide long before what is the exact express purpose of your life, because guess what? Mine hasn't changed in 21 years. On the single side or the married side, I'm living for the same identical thing. It was real easy to figure out if that girl was the girl I was going to marry. It didn't matter to me if she was a Christian. That's a given. What mattered to me was that she was as fanatical as me. If she didn't have the same identical purposes laid out in the Scripture to lay down her life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to win as many possible as we could before we die and go to heaven and to pay any price necessary to do that, I I didn't give her the time of day. That narrows down a whole lot of people real fast. And you don't have to worry, you see, because God, as He sees you following Him, He'll take care of these things. He'll take care of them. But you, whether you're single here tonight or married, you need to understand that this isn't like Mark Darling. You know, sometimes people write me off because they go, hey, that's Mark. You know, that's Mr. You know, fanatic. Mr. like crazy guy. But, you know, that's, that's his temperament. This isn't about temperament. It has nothing to do with my personality or my temperament. You have to decide tonight, is Mark telling the truth 
or lying? Is Mark exaggerating these scriptures or is that what they're really saying? You have to wrestle with that. I've, I'm done wrestling with it. For years I've been done wrestling with it. I'm teaching it now everywhere I go, all over the country. This is what God has called us to. This is what our life is about. My life is not about the accumulation of things, but the accumulation of men and women. That's what my life's about. Remember what Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you rich. Follow me and I'll make you successful and prosperous. I know what Jesus said. In fact, he almost promised him the opposite. Through many tribulations, guys, you'll, sorry, you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, and I need to tell you this too. You know they hated me, right? You've noticed that? Yep, they'll hate you too. Oh, thanks, Lord. <laughs> thanks for that encouragement. Why? Because the devil hates us. That is, if you're living for Christ. Otherwise, he ignores you. He doesn't need to pay any attention to you. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, I want you to know, and you know this about Evergreen, we're not playing a game. We're not about church. I consider the church God's missionary organization to the world. And that's what we are. That's what Evergreen is, along with many other churches in the Twin Cities. They have the same desire to reach out to the community in the name of Christ and win them to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. <coughs> well, let's start with 14. <coughs> for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And notice this, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. That's really heavy, awesome, and exhilarating. When Jesus was on the earth, God was making his appeal, Jesus was a channel, for the Spirit of God. He was God as well. And God was making His appeal to the world. Come to me. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So God was, in, Jesus was imploring men and women being reconciled to God. Now Jesus is gone, isn't He? How many recognize Jesus is gone? The man Jesus is gone. His Spirit lives within us. Now guess who's supposed to play the role of Jesus now? In this area. Only in this area. Who? We are. 
God has committed to us. In other words, He's entrusted us. He said, now you are my steward. You are my mouthpiece to the world. And this is the message. The message that I want the world to be reconciled to me. Please, come and be reconciled. Come. Come and be reconciled. Come. I can help you make peace with God. He's committed that message to us. And it is our God-given responsibility to take it to the world. You know, we don't... We're not used to a kingdom. We're not... We rebelled against England's kings. I'm not going to debate whether the Revolutionary War was biblical or not. There are many who believe it is not. I'm not going to debate that one way or the other. But here's what I want to tell you. You are not part of a democracy anymore. You are part of a kingdom ruled by a king. And when the king says jump, you jump. When the king says do what I tell you to do, your responsibility is to do what our king has told us to do. Not to do what the king has told you to do is high treason in terms of a kingdom. I have a little saying to myself, Mark, to raise your children with secular values and a worldly perspective would be high treason and a total disregard for the stewardship. So I'm very strong with myself. I want you to think sometimes, uh, I heard the other day that someone said, I don't like that Mark Darling. He just says things I think he shouldn't say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way if you're here tonight. If you ever want to rebuke me, feel free. If you want to criticize me, feel free. If you think I'm wrong, tell me. But if I'm not... You better do what Thessalonians says. It says, do not despise any prophetic utterance, but examine all things carefully and hold on to what's good. In fact, it doesn't even say go criticize the prophet. It just says throw out what's bad, hold on to what's good. But you can criticize me, that's okay. But I want to tell you right now, the things I say to you, you better believe I say to Mark. I've never said a thing to you that I haven't looked in the mirror and said to me. And on a regular basis, I challenge myself all the time. It's the only way to keep zealous. It's the only way to keep your fires burning. Because the world around us is working like we're like a giant nuclear core. And the world is like the cooling water around the core, wanting to always lower our temperature. You have to resist that and keep throwing logs on your fire. And if you don't, you become just the same temperature as everyone else around you. And you won't affect anybody. So, We are Christ's ambassadors. We've been given this holy calling. We represent the King. That means we're His representatives. He expects the world. He invites the world. He wants the world to look at us and see Him. He wants the world to see His message and His life in our lives. I want you to go, if you would, to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. You know, if you study the four Gospels, and I invite you to, I challenge you to, and if you just study one particular aspect of the Gospels, if you go through and look at everything Jesus did, and what Jesus states over and over again was His message, you will come up with the same conclusions that I have come up with. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 19, chapter 10. Jesus has been at at Zacchaeus' house. And he says this, in verse 9, Jesus said to them, 
Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, you say, Mark, what is that statement? What is, is it profound? It, what is the meaning of it? What is its significance? Its significance is that this is Jesus' mission statement. And he repeats it quite often. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did not live his life on the planet to look for a wife. Jesus didn't live his life on the planet to consume wealth or to accumulate wealth. In fact, my brother and sister, you know what the Lord said to us? Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth. Now, I don't have the time tonight to go into a financial seminar. We have some good tapes on that. Some of the other guys have done. I just want to make sure you don't misunderstand. Is it wrong to save? No. Proverbs teaches us to look to the future, see danger coming, and prepare to meet it. Is it wrong to hoard? Absolutely. Is it, is it, is it wrong for us to get pleasure from the accumulation of wealth? Yes. Is it wrong for us to enjoy what God has blessed us with? No. It's a fine line. The only way you can ensure you're never over the, over the fine line is just live passionately for the mission of God and you'll always have everything in perspective. You won't be trying to strain in a gnat and swallow a camel. You won't be trying to split hairs and figure out, well, yeah, when can I have this? I don't know. What do you think? Should I own three Range Rovers or two? I don't know. Should I get a Humvee or not? I don't know. What should I do? Do I love people who own Humvees? Sure I do. Most of them don't know the Lord. Will I accept a Christian who owns a Humvee? Sure I will. I didn't bother me. Have a Humvee, have a Mercedes. I don't care what you have. But I'll tell you this. I'm after your heart. I don't care what you own. I want your heart. And I'm going to work like the Dickens to get a hold of your heart and help God put a fire in your heart for His purposes and His callings. And then we'll see what happens, you know, with the things that you own, how you use them. That's up to you before God. What I'm concerned about is getting your heart so God can use you. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now we go to the the life and the example of the Apostle Paul, who is quite probably among the most effective Christians that has ever been. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 19, we read, Though I am free... And I belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone. Now I want you to underline that in your Bible. It's okay to write in your Bible. Unless you have a conviction against it, then don't. Okay, and I mean that sincerely. I make myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. That is the stated purpose of Paul's life. To win as many as possible. To win as many as possible. That is the whole reason for the existence of this church evergreen. The whole goal is to win as many as possible. Bring them into the family of God. Build them up. Mature. To glorify the Lord. To send them back out to win as many as possible. To bring them back in. To help them grow up. Mature. To glorify God. To go back out and win as many as possible. To repeat the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul as often as and as quickly as we possibly can. Now look what he means. To the Jew, I become like a Jew. 
to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things, you want to underline this, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share its blessings. Now, here's his intensity with this. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? You run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What is Paul talking about? What is the focus of that verse? Those are very intense verses. It's always interesting to me, generally, I'm generalizing with this statement I'm going to make right now. I'm generalizing. That when a young man and woman get engaged, one of the things that I've has been my experience because I've done a lot of weddings is young ladies always seem to be real passionate about losing weight. All of a sudden, for a wedding dress that they want to get into, this, I'm not lying about this. This is true. Secondly, they usually go to the tanning booth, depending on the time of year. It's amazing to me what will motivate us to make changes. But I want you to look at this intensity. Paul says, you know what motivates me to change? To be a chameleon? To become whatever I need to become? And I take this so seriously that I beat my body. I make it do what it does not naturally want to do. How many of you like country music? How many of you like rock and roll music? Now, how many of you like alternative music? Now, how many of you like Chinese music? (laughs) And I want you to imagine for a moment... Would you be willing to embrace rock and roll and give up your country if you were living in an area where rock and roll was the prevalent medium of music? How many of you like cowboy boots? I didn't think so. How many of you like Wrangler jeans? Yeah, you get a little Wrangler right there. Okay, I'm not making fun of them. That's okay. I can tell you right now, I don't care for them either. But I can tell you right now, if I move to Arizona, Texas, Wyoming, or Colorado, I'd invest in cowboy boots and Wrangler jeans. And a pickup truck. (laughs) A used one, of course, for me. And I'm not joking about that. I'm very serious. If I was in the heart of Texas, which I've had some friends begging me to come down there to Dallas to move down there, and help with their churches, then uh, we'd have country music in our church service. I take this very seriously. Paul said, look, I go into strict training. Now I'm going to end tonight with a story. Some of you may have heard it. If you've heard it, try to hold on till I get to the end. If you haven't, I, think, uh, I cannot think of a better story. It's a true story to illustrate this principle. I saw a movie not too long ago about a woman named Diane Fossey. How many of you have heard this story? 
Okay, good. Enough if you haven't, then I'll go ahead and tell it. All right. Good. This woman, Diane Fossey, she's a true true lady. She's kind of like uh, that uh, other uh, woman, uh, uh, Leaky. No, Jane Goodall, right. Jane Goodall lady. Anyway, Diane Fossey worked with um, emotionally challenged children. But she loved gorillas. It was her hobby. She read every book she could on gorillas. This was back in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. <coughs> and um, she loved gorillas. And she went to hear a man named Dr. Leakey as often as she could, who spoke on endangered species, and particularly on the mountain gorilla. So this one particular time, she shows up at one of his symposiums, and she's written him a whole lot of letters saying, you know, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help the cause. And he never wrote back, he never wrote back. So she waits till the symposium's over, and she stands at the back, and he comes out, and of course he's surrounded by all these people who want to feel important, and they're talking to Dr. Leakey. And she begins to, you know, address him, Dr. Leakey. And he turns for a minute, and the photographer says, hey, he's got other things to do. She walks away, she says, Dr. Leakey, and she begins to follow him. Finally, she uh, swears at him, and she gets his attention, and he turns around, and he says, what do you want? He says, Dr. Leakey, I am Diane Fossey. She sticks her hands out. She's very forward, very aggressive. She says, uh, you probably remember me. I've written you many times. He says, oh, yeah, you're that lady. You've been writing me. She says, yes, I've been writing you. She says, now, I'm here to help. He says, well, what do you mean you're here to help? Well, I want to go. I want to go help the mountain gorilla, uh, you know, keep from extinction. And he says, well, what's your background? What's your field? He says, well, I work with emotionally challenged children. He said, you've never studied animals. You've never studied anthropology. You've never studied zoology, et cetera, et cetera. No. Animal science? No. Well, come back some other time. So he turns to go away, and she challenges him. She says, Dr. Leakey, I, I don't, I, my voice, I'm losing my voice, otherwise I'd get very dramatic. Okay, you know me well enough to know that. I'm losing my voice. She says, Dr. Leakey, she challenged me. She says, you say that no one's willing to go, and you keep bemoaning the plight of the gorillas, and now you've got someone who's willing to go, and you won't send me? You know, she, she shames him just a little bit in a positive way. The next thing you see is the picture gets black and it opens up and she's just getting off a plane in the Congo. And um, she gets off this plane and she's got her bags and all of her stuff <coughs> and Dr. Leakey's there waiting to greet her. <coughs> and he, <coughs> he comes up to her, welcomes her. And these guys start loading her suitcases up on the Jeep that she's going to be traveling in. Dr. Leakey goes up and starts pulling her down and throwing her on the ground. And she goes, what the blank are you doing? He goes, you can't take all the stuff. I don't have room. Just take one suitcase. And she looks at him. She gets very feisty. And she says, I don't know who you think you are. But I just quit my job, broke off my engagement with my fiancé, and left my family and friends to come out and help you with, my, with your gorillas. I'm blankety blank sure going to bring my bras, underwear, and my hair dryer. Get it back on that Jeep. Puts it back on the Jeep. And the thing that struck me is I was riding the exercise bike and I quit. I just thought, I'm going to sit down and watch this whole movie. Was here's a woman who gave up her engagement, quit her job, left her family and friends, to move 8,000 miles around the world from where she lived for gorillas. For an animal. Not knowing whether she'd have success or not, whether she'd help the cause or not. 
So the next thing that happens is uh, he says, well, do you know how to drive one of these? She goes, no. He says, well, get in. I'll show you. So she sits in. He goes, well, this is first. This is second. Hey, this is your four wheel. And he says, the con goes that way. And he points to this dirt road. And she kind of gasps. She goes, wait, wait a minute. You're not coming with me? I thought we were going to work together. Well, I don't have time to stay here. i got to go to the parts in the world. And she's just dumbfounded. She sits in the car, turns it on, one of those little Range Rovers, something like that, and she takes off with these guys she's never met before. Some of them barely speak English. One of them speaks a little English. So they go off. They make their camp way out in the Congo. Now we're talking about, you know, real rough living. No hot and cold running water. Dangerous jungle diseases. And this woman goes out and lives in this <coughs> jungle. Well, <coughs> as soon as she builds camp, of course, first thing in her mind is I want to see a real gorilla. So she begins hunting for these gorillas, just walking through the woods. You know, walking through the jungle, looking for gorillas. First day, they don't find nothing. Second day, they don't find nothing. You get the impression that it's weeks. And they're looking and they're looking and they're looking. She has this guy with her who's supposed to be a tracker. She finds out he tracks elephants and water buffalo, not gorillas. So she's very frustrated. One day, they're walking along, and this giant silverback gorilla comes running out of the woods with a stick, and he just starts charging them. And, you know... I'm not going to do it. I imitated it once before. I think I did this summer. I'm not going to do it again. Anyway, I, anyway, uh, they start to run. And when she's done running, the gorilla stops. You can just see she's completely exhilarated that they've discovered this gorilla. So the next day, they sneak back very carefully to where they saw the gorilla. And they see the silverback. And they follow him at a distance to his group. They call him a group. And they begin sitting there for days just watching these gorillas. And every day, this woman, not anybody else, no men with her except this, this well, there's a guy with her, but he won't do what she's doing. He stays off the distance. And she crawls closer and closer every day, these gorillas. <clears throat> and then she sits within their eyesight like them all day long. She just sits there. She kind of scratches herself like a gorilla. And she puts a branch in her mouth and she chews on it like a gorilla. She just sits there acting like a gorilla. Well, this goes on for weeks. She takes recordings of the gorillas. And she goes home at night. She puts them on a reel-to-reel tape. And she sits on the floor like a gorilla practicing. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. Now, I mean, I'm really serious. She does this for like days and days, weeks and weeks, becoming all things to all gorillas. The saddest part of the whole movie was that she loves gorillas more than the Christian church loves human beings. And she goes out and and one day it's just pouring down rain. Pouring, I mean like rainforest rain. Like heavy duty rain. And she's just sitting there, all the gorillas. One day, one of the female gorillas comes up and touches her. And she's just overcome. Just so exhilarated. Because no one in recorded history that we know of, of course, somebody probably did, but in the history that we knew of, had ever had contact with these mountain gorillas or had ever touched them. Then she begins to imitate the female gorillas, you know, because she happens to be a female. And what she's trying to do is get the attention of the silverback gorilla because she really wants contact with him. And uh, so she starts rolling around like female gorilla. One day she just rolls on her back and 
puts her hand down like this, and this giant silverback, I mean, could easily pick her up with one arm, by the neck, rip it off, throw her against a tree. That's how strong they are. We're talking major fear factor to deal with in her love for these gorillas. And she lays there, and the silverback comes and puts his finger in her hand. And you just see kind of her eyes start to fill with tears. Well, anyway, the story goes, and now she becomes basically like one of them. They let her hold her young. She just she sits around all the time with these gorillas, and she studies, and she records them. And National Geographic did all this special on Diane Fossey. And, of course, then she's there. She went there originally for a couple of years. She ends up being there her whole life. <coughs> and, uh, anyway, one day, she's showing some students around the compound. It's not really a compound, around her gorillas. She's answering some questions, and she got laws passed for anti-poaching laws because the poachers were killing the gorillas. What they do is cut off their heads, cut off their hands, and leave the body, turn the hands into ashtrays, and the heads just hang on a wall. And they'd sell them for a lot of money. One day, while she's showing these students these gorillas, her, her helpers... Her, the natives there that help come running, tracking her down, saying, you've got to come, you've got to come right now. And you can hear all this squawking. Basically, the poachers have trapped the gorillas, chased them up a tree. They're starting to cut the tree down, and they're starting to hack. And they kill uh, the mother of a little baby gorilla that's part of the group. They take the gorilla, and they put it in a cage, and of course, they're going to you know, sell it. So she gets there late, and she's just overcome with emotion. She's just sobbing, she's just sobbing. And then she's just intensely furious, intensely indignant, intensely vengeful, in a almost a righteous sort of a way. She gets in her Jeep, she drives all the miles into this town, and she starts looking into every little van. She finds the van that has a little cage of exotic animals in it. She breaks it open with a crowbar. She finds a little gorilla curled up, about ready to die, and she picks up that little gorilla, and she walks into this very fine restaurant full of all these fine people. And she screams very loud, is Cloud found something here in this room? And everybody gets silent. And she finally sees him and she walks right up to his table. And she says, you blankety blank, if you ever touch one of my gorillas again, I'll cut off your hands and your head. She walks out of the room. She goes back to take care of her gorillas. And about three weeks later, the poachers kill the male gorilla that she had known for about ten years had made friends with, and she's just completely overcome. She tries to get more poaching laws passed, and finally, several weeks later, in her bed at night, the poachers came, cut her head off. And I remember seeing that movie, and I was completely overcome with the challenge of this. Here's a woman who cares more about gorillas then most of the Christians I know care about the only real endangered species in the world, and that's the human race. And I was so convicted, and I was so challenged by it. This woman took more seriously the Pauline epistle of Corinthians of becoming all things to gorillas than Christians ever take to becoming all things to their neighbor, all things to their fellow countrymen, all things to other countries. And that ought not to be. And I want you to go home and I want you to sleep on that. And I want you to think about that. And I want you to ask yourself, can you really live with yourself if you do not obey this? Can you really, someday, are you willing to look the Lord in the eye when you stand before Him and you know He died for you 
and know, to be honest, Lord, I didn't live for your purposes at all. I didn't have the time of day for the human race. I didn't care whether they went to hell or whether they went to heaven. I didn't care about changing my hairstyle or changing my clothes to become like them. I didn't care enough, Lord. I didn't care about changing my manners, Lord. I didn't care enough. And I think it'll help you seriously reevaluate what you're doing with your life. And I think you'll say, because I know what your heart really is. I know that because Jesus put his heart in you. I know that in your heart, you really say, you know what, Lord? Change me. I want to be your ambassador to the world. I want you to get some tapes this week, if you get a chance, from the tape library. One is called Descending, and the other is called Carrying the Essence of Our Gospel. And the third is How to Become a Person People Like and Admire. And then I'd like you to listen to them sometime over the next couple weeks. Carrying the Essence of Our Gospel, Descending, and How to Become a Person People Like and Admire. And then please come back next week. Please remember to make your list. Please remember to be praying for your five friends each day and that God will give you an opportunity to share your faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight that you were willing to become all things to us. My goodness, Lord, you became... for The step that you took to become a human from God to humanity is a bigger step than if we were to become a chicken to all chickens. The humility that it took to become a human being born of a woman in a manger, the king of the universe, the ruler of all, who has always been and will always be, no beginning and no end, to subjugate yourself to a human body was the most humiliating thing anyone's ever done. But you did it because you loved us. And Lord, the fact of the matter is that if you'd not become man to us, we would have never embraced you and you knew that. And the fact of the matter is, is that if we do not become like the people we're trying to reach, not like their sin, but like them and take on their cares and their concerns and their likes and their dislikes and take time to invest in a relationship with them, they won't come to our Savior either. God, I ask you to change us. I ask you to change me. I ask you to make me more radical, make me more effective, make me more Christ-like. Give me fruit as Hannah prayed, lest I die. In Jesus' name, amen.